Today on the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, we have a second conversation with Robert Vetter. Bob's ability to articulate his methods of traditional soul healing is nothing short of remarkable and absolutely fascinating. Join us as we discuss more of how these ancient practices can help bring healing to our modern world. You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, a show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart, where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level, while you grow the coaching practice of your dreams. So sit back and relax, or sit up and get excited. Either way, you might want to pay attention. This could be important. All right, I am here once again with Bob Vetter, Robert Vetter. Bob, nice to see you again. Thank you, Doug. Thanks for having me back. It's 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 really great to have you back because I was fascinated by our discussion last time. And gosh, I wish I remembered every word that you said, but I'm going to see if I can prime your memory and get that font of information start flowing again. Um, as I recall... Last time we were speaking, you were talking about um, traumas and how that when a person is traumatized, a little piece of them remains there or something like that is is, is left behind. Um, a susto, was that correct? Correct. And that um, and that that's analogous to people these days, often you know because they're so bound to remembering that thing. It's almost like a piece of them is still back there. A piece of them is still back at that moment in time when that happened. Exactly. And um, I also today I would love to get more information from you about also the the basic theme of this podcast in general is essential coaching skills, and uh, I'd like to find out from you what what really are essential to you as far as being able to be a great coach and maybe also, you know, how do you, how you deal with various issues with your business and how mm -hmm. to, okay. Does that sound good? Sounds so, good. Can you, can you pick up where we left off? What, what was that about that Susto? Yeah. So I'll just kind of recap what we said about Susto. Um, okay. Susto is uh, considered by anthropologists to be a culture bound syndrome. And it's found, the idea is found all over Latin America. And it is the idea that we experience soul loss when we have a particular type of fright. So I, I said that it overlaps trauma, but it's not synonymous with trauma. Um, it could sometimes be something that we might consider relatively minor. Uh, so mm -hmm. for example, um, I have one teacher from Mexico who who is convinced that somebody should never take a baby and toss the baby up in the air because that causes susto. So any time that you have an experience where you go ah! like that and you lose your breath mm -hmm. like that because yeah. of that sudden moment of fright, yeah. that's an example of a susto. Really? And... So these sustos can be really, really major, as I said, you know, an extreme trauma, like a woman being raped or, or experiencing being there for a murder. Right. Those are those are major, major sustos, but then there are minor sustos as well. And every time it happens, a little piece of you is left behind. So, you know, mm -hmm. we could argue whether that piece of you is a piece of your soul, if it's a if it's a symbolic understanding, but we could say some part of us gets left behind. The, 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 the way I like to describe it is that a piece of your vitality is left at that time, at that place. Okay. So in ceremony, you know, when we, when we go back to it, we go there with the idea of stalking that energy, of finding that energy that was left behind. That is very picturesque language, stalking the energy. You're like that, Well, like, I'm uh, using that. That's not necessarily what everybody else would say, but that's the way I look at it, is that we're stalking in the piece of energy that was left behind. In order to and, bring it back. In order, to, in order to bring it back. So in the in the ceremonial way that, that I was taught in Curanderismo, since, since we experience it often as that, oh, 
moment where you lose your breath, we actually do that to the, the patient or the client. What do you mean? You we do actually that? recreate that moment. So <laughs> one of the ways that we do it is by by blowing blowing uh, mezcal, uh, mezcal onto the person, onto the back of their neck. You do what now? So you <laughs> <laughs> you you blow mezcal onto the back of their neck. Yeah. Wow. That's you part of it. Probably can't do that over Zoom very well, right? You can't do it over Zoom very well. That's true. <laughs> um, but so, so this it actually takes practice to do that. Believe I would or not. think so. Yeah, because no, you, I get it. You you vaporize it literally from your mouth by blowing it. It's called soplando, where you blow you you blow this um, mezcal onto the person. Mezcal is like tequila. Correct. Yeah. And I so mean, that's a piece of the ceremony. So you're spitting on your clients, basically. You're yes. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, what it what it does is it it reshocks the person, yeah. and it connects them to what occurred at that time and at that place. Well, you know, it's fascinating. You should be telling me this. This um, a number of years ago, oh, man, <laughs> I. I taught some workshops that were called How Deep the Rabbit Hole. How Deep the Rabbit Hole. And, and um, <sighs> fascinating story. I, I had a guy come. I wanted to teach these seminars that were not just how-to seminars, but they were experiential seminars. They were places where we would go and, and do deep trance stuff, you know, do deep hypnosis things. And, um, you know, breath walks in the woods and, and you know, just be out there and so we did trance dancing and we had i got these drummers to come and we li literally were you know listening to these african drummers uh, it, it took place in vermont so these were not african african drummers these were um white vermonters but they had learned african drumming and they were darn good at it and they had their drums and it, it was man it was amazing it was feeling the drums not just listening to them but like feeling because they're big and they're in the room and they're pulsating off you it was an ex amazing experience and i got hold of this guy who was a shaman an actual shaman it said so right in the phone book he was a, a shaman so i looked up under <laughs> the yellow pages under shaman and i found this guy um but he really was one and he he this i think mexican tradition of shamanism but he, he set up this what he called a mesa uh, in the middle of the seminar room floor, it was basically a um, a bearskin that he put all these different artifacts on and things in, in a sort of medicine wheel sort of shape into the four directions, and um, and and then there was this one woman in our group who was uh, kind of experiencing some challenges and he was working with her specifically and at one point he had this bottle i think it was water but it might have been mezcal now that you mention it um and he took a big swig of it and then he just spit it all he just like vaporized it all over her and she like fell backwards he was very quick and caught her but i mean it just like threw her into this trance it was, it was, it was an amazing you know shock to the system he didn't explain and say, in a moment, I'm going to. <laughs> he did not do that at all. Everyone was shocked, I think, as she was. But is that sort of what you're talking about? Is that what you're doing there? Yeah. Um, now, my guess is, since he used the word mesa, that he probably was a practitioner of Peruvian shamanism. Okay. Because they employ the use of a mesa, which is a particular type of altar. Um, and they also use... Uh, they use Florida water in the way that you described. Okay. So Florida water literally means a flowered water, but it has alcohol as its base. And there is a commercial version of it. And then there are like homemade versions of it. Um, but And they use it very much the way that you described. Okay. Um, blowing it onto the person. Um, so yes, it is similar. Um, wow. And it, it takes place at various times during a curing ceremony. So if a person came to you for coaching, would they be expecting like these curing ceremonies, like these native curing ceremonies type things? Or Well, yes and no. I mean, I, a lot of the work that I do right now is 
all the work that I do now is on Zoom. So rather than me setting up an altar for them, mm -hmm. um, a lot of the work that we do, that I do now is with people where they they set up the altar for themselves. So I describe the way that they use the four directions, the articles that they place on those directions, which are symbolic of the the four elements. And then we also use What's a little bit different is that we also use symbols, things that come up over and over again. Like I'm very careful to to pay attention to language patterns and words that people use over and over again. And we try to connect those to symbols and the symbols can be placed at different places on the altar, depending on the the time in our the, the stage in our time together that the person is working on. So whether they're beginning something new, whether they're looking at the dark side of themselves, whether they're looking for transformation or transmutation of one thing into another, or to um, put it into practice. You know, there are various places on the altar where we do these things. So yes, ceremony is important to me. Um, as my work has matured, I've sort of made it very specific to what's going on with that person at that time. And something that you'll be familiar with is looking at what their strengths are already. So for example, if I'm working with someone who is an artist, then we'll try to use symbolism that comes out of their imagination and that is created in artwork that we'll use on the altar for somebody else who is a, a writer, you know, we'll, I'll have them journaling and we'll use the journal entries and position them at different places on the altar and construct ceremony that is very specific to that person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, the, the soul retrieval part of it is something that I often do. Um, and that comes back, back to the Susto. Yeah. To the Susto. So, I mean, I don't, I'm not there to do, I've had to change that around a little bit because a lot of it, um, a lot of it that the training that I had in it is tactile, is um, touching the person, putting things on the person, blowing something onto the person, even at the end of it, massaging the person's hands or their feet at the end of the, of the ceremony and then covering them up with a white sheet. You know, there are all of these elements that I learned that we can't do through Zoom, but we can do other aspects of it that we kind of put together and creatively use over Zoom. Wow, that's so, so interesting. So a ceremony then is kind of a, uh, not a scripted thing, obviously, but it is, it follows a ceremony, it follows an order in a syntax, but it's made yeah. by the individual's strengths. Like if they're a writer, then you write things and you know, if they're a painter, they paint things or whatever to put on the on the altar. Exactly. So, I, you know, I think of every session that I have with somebody as being a ceremony. So we begin it by smudging, by burning um, something to purify the space. So normally I would do that for the person. But since we're doing it over Zoom, I'm purifying myself. The client is purifying him or herself mm -hmm. and then we purify the room in order to set the stage for it so what we're doing is we are we're separating out sacred space from normal everyday life and that is the container that everything takes place in then at the end of the of the work that we do together we smudge again and we um we purify ourselves and then um, then a clockwise movement that seals in the energy and the change that was created during that session. Hmm. Wow. That sounds absolutely fascinating. So you'd mentioned something to me, if I recall correctly, about um, the East and the West being part yes. of it. Yes. Yes. So... Um, you'll be familiar with this and it, you know, when I, um, when I came across through you sleight of mouth, this part I, is something that I was already very much familiar with and it's 
understanding the limiting beliefs that a person has. And there are clues for it, as I um, also mentioned, if you pay very close attention to the language patterns that a person uses, mm -hmm. we'll get a sense of a limiting belief. So I'll try to articulate that belief if A, then B, and that means C. I mean, very similar to mm -hmm. the way that you put it in your book and in your work on sleight of mouth. Um, the way that we deal with that ceremonially is to take the limiting belief and go to the direction of the West, which is the direction of the setting sun, and offer it up. Hmm. Ask the spirit of the West to take from me the limitations that that belief have placed on me. Hmm. Wow. Talk to the spirit of the West as if it is a person uh -huh. and ask for the help of the spirit of the West. Wow. And so all of the language that we use when we go to the West is negative language. So all of the things that I don't want, I don't talk about anything that I do want. I talk about what I'd like to be rid of. And then once everything has been said, everything has been expended, then we turn our attention to the direction of the East, the rising sun, the new beginning. Mm -hmm. And we install the new belief, the, the empowering belief that can make a difference. Wow, that's fascinating. So how do you do that? How do you install a new belief? So the new belief is, um, the new belief is, we, we figure that out during the platica so that if, if you go back to the, the formula that I described earlier, it, it was, I think I meant, well, if I didn't, let me yeah, remind us. pretend that, we yeah. know. So I there's two parts to it, the heart to heart talk and then the ceremonial part. So the, the heart to heart talk is the, the bringing out the story that has been hidden. So there's always the story that the person brings to the event and then there's always the underlying story the one that you dig for deeper and deeper the the lay the layers of the onion that you keep peeling back to go deeper and deeper and usually the belief that belief is one of those things that is lying hidden until it reveals itself i guess i would say from the type of talk that goes on so then that, all of those get taken and turned into something ceremonial. And I mean, you could look at, you could look at the ceremonial part and say that there is a, a deep religious or spiritual significance. And I wouldn't argue that that is true or false. I, I would say that that's one level of understanding it. On another level, we can say that it, it, it makes it real in the mind of the person. Mm. So we could say that there is a, there is a modern psychological way to look at symbols as unlocking information, giving us access to a, a, a part of our mind that we don't normally go to. Right. So the, the symbols the, the, that you use are they are they standardized or do you create new symbols for every person? Uh no, I'm we're creating symbols for that person. So could you give us an example of that? Let's just say hypothetically that um I was your client and I had a problem with I don't know, you probably you don't get anything so simple as, you know, quitting smoking or something. But you might get addictions. Okay, so then what I would do is I would say, All right, so you're having you're having a problem with tobacco. Okay. And I would say, okay, let, so let's take tobacco and let's put a pack of cigarettes on your altar. Okay. So that rather than consider it something evil that we want to get rid of, we're going to take that pack of cigarettes and we're going to put it, we're going to start it out on the east side of the altar. And we're going to communicate with the spirit of tobacco. And maybe I'll even make an offering to tobacco. Maybe I'll even say, Let's put some food down for tobacco and let's communicate with the spirit of tobacco about the change in the relationship that I'd like to have with it. Hmm. So that rather than ruling my life, 
that I can come to understand it in a different way. Wow, fascinating. I mean, that's where I would start. And I think I've also, tobacco is a tricky one because in, you know, in in, in indigenous societies, uh, tobacco has a sacred significance. So that's an even better reason to have a relationship with tobacco that's not based on me using it for my personal pleasure, but using it in prayer. So one of the things I recommend to people is, if you're a smoker and you want to quit smoking, go back to the root reason for tobacco in the first place of prayer and make sure that every time you smoke, you pray. Wow. Cool. Love it. Hey, um, so the symbols then would not necessarily be something drawn on a piece of paper, but it might be a symbolic pack of cigarettes or a symbolic um, rock or uh, yeah. cell phone or you know some object. Yeah, an object, or it can be, a, I've had people do written symbols. Yeah, we do that also. Okay, drawn on a piece of paper. Or... Drawn on a piece of paper, and then, you know, we put it at a place on the altar and change its position as we, we work through huh. uh, the symbol and the issue. Oh, that's really interesting. And what it does, you know, like I said, what you could look at that as a as a spiritual thing, and I, you know, and and it is. You can also look at it psychologically and say that something that begins inside of me in a metaphorical way or mm-hmm. an analogous way, this this thing that is a problem inside of me, if I can take it outside of me and objectify it in some way, now it's open to my understanding. It's open to my manipulation it's open to my change mm-hmm. as opposed to being inside where i view it as intrinsically my own and therefore not able to change right 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 i love it that's really good i mean it's 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 interesting to the to think about how these um the ceremonies could be you know highly spiritual and thought of as, as a spiritual uh ceremony um and it could also be a psychological uh, tool, technique, yeah, process, yeah. tool. Um, yeah, and then these things are symbolic of these. It doesn't have to be, you know, Jesus or God or the Great Spirit or whatever, but it's a symbolic of, you know, that greater part of me or the other conscious mind or, or you know, that sort of thing. It can be symbolic of these other parts of us that an evil spirit might be just a, you know, part of me I don't like. And I want to get rid of and process, um, but it can be exactly. thought of as and symbolic in this kind of processing, which is so. I, I would describe it as social and uh-huh. spiritual and psychological. That all of these things are going on at the same time. So mm-hmm. I also ask a person what their religious or spiritual beliefs are. Okay, because you know, in this in this form of work, I consider that critical to understanding the person and how they can bring in their belief about any transcendent power as being part of the process. Yeah. Yeah. But not, not as waving a magic wand. So, so if somebody came in and was highly Christian or Jewish or Islamic or whatever, could you still do these ceremonies? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll use the language of, like, I don't consider myself a Christian, but I will pray to the spirit of Jesus on behalf of somebody. I see. Um, and I, the way that I explain it is that the, this is a three-way partnership. That it's it's me, it's you, and your belief of whatever is beyond, whatever is transcendent, mm-hmm. whatever is a power bigger than you. And what if the person doesn't have that? What if they're an, an atheist? then I would say, well, what, what, is, what is the ultimate reality to you? Is there an organizing principle that underlies things, mm-hmm. whether you call it something spiritual or religious or not? Or what, what is foundational to you? You know, and maybe it's the idea, maybe it's just a concept that, um, for example, I mean, atheists tend to be very, very um, ethical people. So do you, is there is there an underlying ethical principle that connects you with everything that is? If not, maybe you're scientific 
Do you think that there is some ultimate organizing factor, some organizing principle mm-hmm. that underlies things, that keeps keeps things in order instead of total chaos? Cool. Love we it. can apply anything that is is beyond mm-hmm. um, the material as the third element. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. And then there's a there's a part that I play. Yeah. I'm going to facilitate your healing. I'll explain what my responsibilities are. And then I'll say, well, what what do you think your responsibilities are? What can you do in this that shows that you are not expecting the change to be done for you that proves that you are are a willing uh agent yeah. in your own change. Oh that's so great. That's so great. It's so great. I, I just, I love that. I resonate with that so much because in my own work as a hypnotherapist and NLP practitioner over the years, um, I've always felt that the, you know, hypnosis or processes, it was always a cooperative um, experience. You know, it wasn't just me working on you and, you know, it's my responsibility to fix you. It's like, no, 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 no. It's our responsibility and uh, we will together work on this. And I almost invariably give people homework assignments of some kind or another, whether it's to, you know, listen to a hypnotic trance or to do some self-hypnosis or, or something, you know, they're going, they're going to be involved in the process. It's not just me, you know, exactly. Cause they, they need to be, I think they really need to be. And it's funny too, because sometimes, you know, with Ericksonian work, um, I've been very indirect and sometimes I've had people that have thought like, well, this hypnosis didn't work at all. I said, well, how come you've lost 30 pounds? It's like, well, yeah, but I did that all on my own. <laughs> and I'm going like, okay, yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> exactly. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, good. Good. So, Bob, what do you think are essential coaching skills? I mean, this is so, different than most people's coaching, but still, what do you consider to be essential coaching skills. So I, I started on this one in the last our last session, but one is what I would describe as sacred listening. And sacred listening goes beyond what we think of as listening. You know, for most people don't listen. Most mm-hmm. people hear, but they don't listen. So mm-hmm. there is a kind of concentrated compassion that I think is a way of listening, a way of being with a person. I mentioned it last time. I believe I, I the way that I explained it was to uh, be able to be with a person in their pain. Mm, yeah, yeah. It doesn't end there. It begins there. But a person who is truly heard, it's it's said that that pain that is shared is cut in half. And that's kind of that's kind of a way to a start to start so that there is this concentrated listening, which is the capacity to be with a person in their discomfort. You know, one of the things that that people tend to do when they're around someone who is suffering in one way or another is to try to change it in that moment to try to tell them, oh, you don't need to be that way. Mm -hmm. You know, you need to look at it this way. And while I'm not saying that, that a therapist or a coach's job is to accept everything the way it is and leave it that way, they have to enter into the world of the other person before the, the rapport is created that can even begin to go along with change. So this, in my opinion, is a skill. And there are certain people who seem to be born with it and others who can develop it as a skill. And I've seen master healers, and there's something about their presence, something about being with them that goes beyond anything that words can say or do. Yeah. So I'd, I'd consider sacred listening to be um, one essential coaching skill. Beautiful. Um, and if I may, that um, it jibes very well with one of the things that I've been teaching for years in my classes, which is... Um, active listening, where you kind of repeat back to the person what they've just said to make sure you've heard it correctly. And that what's fascinating about that is a lot of times when you use their same words back to them in a very real way, 
they're hearing it for the first time because they exactly the part of their brain that hears things is different from the part of the brain that formulates language so although they just said it it just came out of their mouth they didn't hear it so no and they process it in a completely different way and may even attach different meanings to it you know i've had people say you know well what you just said was you know x y and z and all of a sudden it's like oh yeah Right. <laughs> I can't yeah. believe I thought that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, and it also jibes with um, something I've learned from Stephen Gilligan, which is um, to to be welcoming, you know, in his his coach state that he's developed with Robert Diltz. Um, I'm not sure all what all those letters stand for in the acronym of coaching. I should look it up. I'm sure I can. It's in the first podcast I did, second podcast I did. But... Um, but the H, I'm darn right, pretty sure it stands for hospitable, being, being hospitable, which is to, to welcome in, you know, the, the, the negative, if you will, state, you know, whatever the thing is that you want to get rid of. It's like, well, let's just sit with it. Let's just welcome it in. Let's just be here and let all parts of us be here, you know, be present exactly. at this very moment. Exactly. Know? Because, you know, there, there also is, um, you know, we, we, in some ways have a culture where we where we don't allow people to express that side of themselves mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not welcome in normal right. conversation right. No. because it makes people uncomfortable right so just by opening the space creating a sacred space and saying whatever you bring here is is acceptable yeah anything that you bring here is okay beautiful so for another example, you know, we talked about the the Temescal, I think last time, the, the Mesoamerican sweat lodge that I'm involved in also. Mm-hmm. I tell people, and I, you know, I've heard it said before that that this is like going to a church in one way, except this is a church where you can scream obscenities if that's what you need to in the moment. Hmm. Wow. So that so that anything is acceptable. Anything can be expressed here because what moves is healthy and what is stuck generates lack of health got it so sacred listening i love that that's just such a beautiful way of describing it it's just that's beautiful what what else is then there for so you? another one that another one is connecting emotions to the story because a lot of times when when somebody tells you a story, what they'll do is they'll they'll go into the the minutia, the details of every aspect of the story, and they'll tell it in a very matter of fact way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas what really what marks experience is the emotions that we connect with something. So in understanding what the emotions are that I've connect that I've attached to parts of that story, we can then find out, well, what are the emotions that you want to experience? Hmm. And so that's why in, in, in a lot of the, even in the ceremonies, you know, we ask to go from the toxic side of emotions, the limitations that these emotions place on us to other emotions, to using them in a positive way, to affect change, but we use the the language of emotions to initiate that shift. Okay, so, so it's a, looking at language in a different way. Um, all right, so just throw out any example of a, of a change I want to make as a client. Yeah, well, we use smoking before. Let's let's use you know I just want to do something really banal and uh, typical for a hypnotist. Um, I, I want to lose. 50 pounds. I want to lose, I want to lose 20 pounds. Why do you want to lose 20 pounds? Because I'm fat and be, and it's healthy be healthier. My blood pressure is high uh-huh. um, and, and I don't look good. I've, I've, you know, gained weight over this COVID situation and my pants are too tight and, and I just, I would feel better if I lost 20 pounds. So tell me a little bit about your eating patterns. You know, what, what do you eat on a, on an average day? Um, mostly chocolate chip cookies and mm-hmm. um, and bananas. 
And tell me about the impulse to go and eat a chocolate chip cookie. What I hope is you're it? You're not that... expecting serious answers here, but yeah, go ahead. Uh, sorry. Yeah, when you when you decide that you're going to eat a chocolate chip cookie, take me through that experience. What goes on in your mind before you pick up that chocolate chip cookie? Well, I think um, first I think okay, well I haven't eaten in the past ten minutes, so I should probably eat something before I starve. So, um, what would be the easiest? That's mm -hmm. kind of the process I go through. And then I see this um, carton of cookies that I've purchased. And uh, I thought, yeah, that's it. That'd be easiest, fastest, and uh, let's go. So tell me about the emotions now that you experience before you eat the chocolate chip cookie and after. Um, well, before I eat the chocolate chip cookie, I have this emotion of um, uh, it's just kind of like almost... Uh, I don't want to say desperation, but it's a feeling of like, uh, I, I need to change my state. I, I'm nervous. I'm scared. I'm anxious. Kind of like that. And then after the chocolate chip cookie, I can go like, okay, I can go back to sleep now. Mm -hmm. So what are the, what are the, the emotion that you described before you ate the chocolate chip cookie was a sense of desperation well, I didn't want to say desperation because it is not, that's a bit extreme, but it's a little bit of anxiousness, a little bit of, uh -huh. uh, yeah. And what experience would you like to have? Would, if anxiety would, is, a, is an experience that you don't enjoy, what is it, what kind of emotions would you like to have on, on a regular basis? I'd like to just, you know, feel happy and satisfied. Happy and satisfied. Yeah. Okay, so what are things that you do otherwise that make you happy and satisfied um i love walking in nature and um and uh besides eating chocolate chip cookies um let me see walking in nature is good uh playing the piano great yes. so what so obviously where we're going with this is we're going to reinforce the things that you do that express those emotions i see Okay. And give you opportunities to experience those emotions on a more regular basis. Cool. Nice. Got it. So that's that's a big piece. You consider that to be an essential coaching skill to be able to name the emotions that are associated with whatever behavior is there. And Both then, what you the, the things that are limiting to you that you don't want, mm -hmm. as well as articulating what it is that you do want through emotions rather than than um specific elements in a story. I mean, you can use elements in a story, but we're inserting the emotions into it. And that's because you believe the emotions are the the driving? They're, yeah, they're the key to change. They're the key to understanding even memories. You know, if, if we don't engage mo emotions, we don't form memories. Uh-huh. Interesting. Or at least not as easily. You know, when we engage the emotions, it, it what it does is it 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 lets everybody know something important is going on here, whether it's good or bad. Right. Good. Wow. So are there any other skills that you'd consider to be essential coaching skills? Yeah, well, so we we mentioned beliefs. Um when I mentioned going to the east and going to the west. Yeah. Um, I consider beliefs to be an absolute essential coaching skill. What do you mean by that? I don't know. What you to mean. to un to um, uncover the beliefs that we have that uh, that to a large extent determine our behaviors and our experience of the world. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, let's just say hypothetically again that I, I'm the guy that wants to lose twenty pounds and that. Although I was making that up, let's pretend that it's true that I eat uh, a lot of chocolate chip cookies and bananas. Um, we talked about the emotions. What? How do you how do you uncover the beliefs? So, I'll, I mean, I'll give you an extreme example. Um, I've been working with a client who I didn't even know had a um, an eating disorder, mm -hmm. and it was only the result of like working together for a long time until we discovered what the what the nature of that was and it was a belief that um it was a belief that she is not entitled 
to have food that she enjoys. Oh. And okay. this how did was, you go about uncovering that belief? Was it through questioning? Was it uh, that? Yeah, it was questioning. I mean, understand also that we we had already um, uncovered a whole series of other beliefs, but this one was absolutely foundational because um, it was based on a belief of of not being good enough, um, not deserving to be fed properly, mm. and even an idea of being harmful to other people. And it was all connected to food, and that didn't come out until a lot of other ground had been covered. Wow. Wow. So, okay. So could you just give us a, a like a, a 50 cent version of uh, how do you go about uncovering a belief? What is the process by which you would do that? So, okay. Let me think this through. You, um, can you use me as an example? Um, back to the chocolate chip cookies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. What would, what would you do in that case? I mean, we've, you've uncovered the emotion. Yeah. That's so the um, yeah, the emotion is that you you have a, you have uh, anxiety yeah. and you reach for the cookie. Right. And afterwards I feel um like I can go back to sleep, I said. Yeah, so so take me back to you know, and there may be a susto connected with this. Mm. In the case that I just told you about the eating disorder, there were there were a series of sustos that led up to the establishing of that belief. So I might ask you, well, you know, tell me about eating in your household that you grew up in. Well, when I was a kid, um, my my grandmother lived with us and my father was a raging alcoholic and my mother was a school teacher who was like never home. And so my grandmother really took care of us, but she, she couldn't, you know, communicate very well. She didn't speak English. Very well. So um, she mostly baked for us when we came home from school and stuff. She'd, she'd bake cookies and bake pies and bake things. So that's how I knew everything was okay. So you developed, you developed a belief that if I eat a cookie, what does that mean? I would ask you, what, what does that mean? So if I eat a cookie, well, then, yeah. Yeah, then I'm safe at home with grandma and um i'm 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 loved i'm safe i'm okay so cookies equal safety yeah and love and love yeah okay i mean I'm, I, I mean that's obvious everybody knows that <laughs> so so if we look at the result of that of a lifetime of eating cookies, that that means safety and love. What we also have is uh, an unhealthy weight gain. Is that right? Well, that might be partly. <laughs> well, that's why you came to me in the first place. That might be partly responsible for my weight gain. Are you saying chocolate chip cookies make me fat? What are you? <laughs> What I'm saying is that you came to me because you identified this as a problem. Okay. I'm not, right. I'm not Maybe judging. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so cookies mean safety and love yes. for you. Yes, now, looking at it today, would you say that those are an equivalent or not? Well, you know, speaking as a 35 year old man, um, Fully, fully grown adult that that I am now, plus thirty years. Um, I would say that logically, no, it doesn't mean that cookies are are confection. They are sugar laden, fat filled um, confection that have nothing to do with love or anything else. It's just a, a just a baked good. So okay, so what are some examples of ways? that you have felt love that did not include cookies? Well, you know, holding hands with my wife and, um, you know, going for walks in nature together and, and, and talking. And if you had a choice of 
having somebody who loved you and who you loved versus eating a cookie by yourself, which one would you take? Okay, good. So I'm I'm beginning to see how you go about unearthing these beliefs then. Yeah. Cool. So so three essential coaching skills that I'm gathering you from so far is one is the sacred listening. Two is to identify emotions that are attached to various behaviors that are going on there. What is the be, uh, emotions there? And then also the beliefs that are entwined probably with the emotions. Exactly. Wow. Cool. Got it. And Bob, can I ask you one more question? Sure. This might be a little, a little personal. Can I, little, I don't know. You have full uh, permission. Yeah. All right. Well, all right then, Bob. You are a cultural anthropologist. You Guilty studied, as charged. You, you've, you've, you've been studying anthropology for a long time, and obviously you know an awful lot about it. And you've also um, been adopted in some native cultures, right? You, you were adopted into, into some cultures. Um, and everything you've been talking to us, I mean, uh, language, sustos, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, I, I don't know these words. And I, I know vaguely of, kind of some of the things you've been describing because I've witnessed them or, um, like I said, in the experience I had doing, teaching that class of uh, how deep the rabbit hole, I had some experiences with shaman, et cetera. But um, are you concerned at all about, you know, being basically, a, you know, a white guy from Long Island to be doing these Native rituals as as your 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 practice basically a sacred native ritual. So yes, I am concerned about it. And what I would say is that there is a difference between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation. Mm -hmm. And the difference is to me, cultural appropriation is when somebody goes in as in a casual way, they go to another culture as a tourist. Mm. They bring something back like a souvenir. And then they take the souvenir out of context and they, they sell it. That's what I would call cultural appropriation. What is different in what has happened to me is that I am, I have been in the course of, of learning these other cultures, I've also developed a lifelong connection with the cultures, with the families, with the people, and have an ongoing relationship with them. And in the case of the things that I do that I use in my work, I have the encouragement of people who want to see that utilized. So... Uh, for encouragement example, of people from from the native cultures. My, my teachers, yeah, the people who have taught me the things that I use, they encourage. They've encouraged me to share those in a wider world. So what I like to say is that that the work that I do is culturally informed. That it's informed by the experiences that I've had. So I am, I am a white guy from Long Island. I'm a white guy from Long Island who underwent a lot of personally transformative experiences and my own healing in order to get to where I am now in order to be able to help other people. And, and you and, didn't do that just on Long Island. You went to Oklahoma and Mexico, Mexico. And the, yeah, the families that you've been adopted into are Oklahoman. Yeah. So Southern Plains tribes. Mm -hmm. what, what tribes? Comanche, Kiowa, Cheyenne, Caddo. Wow. Cool. Um, and I, you know, the, the healing practices that I utilize, though, are I am personally informed. Uh, I don't heal using those techniques from those those cultures. Okay. I, my, my, my life has been um, altered through that. 
and it informs the work that I do. Some of the techniques that I use come out of curanderismo, which is Mexican, and that is a body of teachings that um, my teachers have encouraged me to take out into the world, to make them my own, to use them creatively, and to share this medicine with others. Nice. Thank you. That's, that's, that's a great answer. That's a great answer. Wow, gosh, you know, as as before, I could talk to you all day, and uh, we've had you back twice now. I'm, I'm thinking, when's the next time I can get back? Because <laughs> there's so much more I want to, to learn and talk to you about, but I don't want to take too much more of your time. I, I appreciate so much your your willingness, your generosity to spend this much time with us and to, to be so forthcoming and, and honest and, and you know open about the way you do and your approaches to things. It's 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 a beautiful thing. My pleasure, Doug, and someday we could do part three if you want. Okay, thank you. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you. Bob Vetter, how, how do people get hold of you? Do you have a website? <laughs> they will be able to find my website in the very near future, bobvetter.com. All right. Uh, in the meantime, I hope people will also listen to my podcast, which is Healing and Spirituality in World Cultures on iTunes, iHeartRadio, all the major platforms and by email at my very very old dinosaur like email address bob v1111 at aol.com is that 1111 is that like 1111 it's four ones oh, okay <laughs> bob v1111 at aol.com cool and your bobvetter.com is that just one word bob Vetter. Yes, Bob Vetter, all one word, dot com. Two T's Vetter. Beautiful. Well, Bob Vetter, thank you again for being here. Doug, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Well, that does it for another episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I certainly enjoyed having you here. Hey, if you want more information about Sleight of Mouth, you can find it at EssentialCoachingSkills.com, or you might even check out SleightofMouth.org. That's a nice website, too. Thanks. Stay safe. Stay curious.